welcome to the Another Startup Story podcast. Today we've got um, a really special guest with us. We've got David Abraham, who is the co-founder of Outpost. Um, Outpost is a temporary working and living space that attracts digital nomads who are open to exploring new ideas, cultures and environments. Um, but his professional background spans many fields. Um, he was previously a consultant at the United Nations Support Facility for Indonesian Recovery. Um, he's also overseen budgets um, and foreign assistance programs at the White House um, and also did a short stint in risk management in Lehman Brothers. Um, and on top of that, he's also run non-profit organizations in Uganda. He's lectured in Lithuania and um, his writing has appeared in the New York Times and he's also written a book titled The Elements of Power, of which we'll go on to in a, in a bit more detail later on. And so in today's episode, the topics we'll cover are really just kind of looking at, I guess, escaping the nine to five and traveling whilst working, how you got into that and how the birth of Outpost came about. Um, and also the future of co-working and digital nomads um, and also how to find your creative calling and how to build a community-based brand. So lots to cover. Just a few <laughs> we'll things, try, thank you We'll try much. and pack it up. So welcome, David, how are you today? Thank you, Carmen, great. Thank Good. you for having me. And where, you, where have you come from? I've uh, from, from Bali to, to, to Singapore where I am now. Okay. Um, and I was back in the US for uh, Thanksgiving as well. Amazing. Uh, so do you want to just introduce yourself and tell us where you're originally from? So I'm originally from Connecticut. Uh, and as you noted, spent a number of, uh, a bit of time traveling overseas, working and, and, and writing. I uh, most recently was coming from New York in about 2015 mm -hmm. and uh, came out to, to Bali and uh, was there to set up a, a workspace and a, and a, and a community uh, for people who could live and, and work anywhere. Yeah, and yeah. it was really a space for myself who had been traveling and, and working for, for quite a bit of time. Mm -hmm. And my partner as well, who was based in Shanghai. Right. Um, but he was traveling around the Asia region, realized he just needed to be close to an airport. Oh, so we okay. set up this, this uh, live space, workspace for, for he and I, and it was a, a side project uh, because we both had something else that we were working on at the time. How, how did you guys meet? We both went to the same graduate school. Right, right, so, so you knew each other from, other. yeah. And were you close or had you just reconnected because you were both traveling or? Well, it, it, incidentally, his, his career at Tufts University started as mine ended. So we met through the alumni network. Right, so I was I based in, in Tokyo in 2010 and 11. And I would go over to uh, Shanghai and, and I met him there. Mm -hmm. And then we stayed in contact. And, and right, so interesting. So I guess kind of before we go into how you started Outpost, um, I just want to rewind back to the beginning days of when you first, you know, exposed to the digital nomad scene, I guess. Um, like, what did your life look like? What were you doing? What projects were you working on back then? Back then, I guess it would be uh, 2011, 2010, 11. At that point, I was managing a, a, a clean water project in northern Uganda, providing uh, clean water in, in rural areas. And I was also based at uh, in Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry. Right. So I had uh, two things going on sure. at the same point. And I did a lot of work in the commodity space. And okay. so uh, I was traveling around to a lot of different parts of the world um, in my pursuit of understanding the commodity markets. Right. And so I was in Rio, I was in Tallinn, Estonia, I was in Beijing, and I was seeing a lot of people working in cafes. And I always thought it was peculiar. Uh -huh. Now, I was working in the cafe, but I understood my job was unique, 
what were all these people doing in cafes and why did they have to be there? Yeah. And really, to me, that was an extension of, of teleworking, right. uh, telecommuting, and people decided, well, I don't have to be at home. I have the flexibility with my, with my, with my mobile phone to be anywhere, so I want to be in a cafe. Mm -hmm. And then we started, at that point, I started wondering, why do they have to be in a cafe? Why couldn't they be anywhere? Why couldn't they be in an idyllic location? And uh, after a few years of traveling, I at that time started writing a book as well and was really finishing up the book and was doing that in Bali. Mm -hmm. And I had spent a lot of time in Indonesia uh, in my previous travels and, and thought it was a great place for me to finish writing the book. Mm -hmm. And also thought at that point, wow, a lot of other people may have flexibility yeah. because they're all working in cafes. Why can't they come out to a place like Bali? Mm -hmm. So we set up a, a community because what I realized was that the lifestyle of traveling is, is fabulous. It's, it's um, amazing to wake up and have the experience to go up Machu Picchu. Yeah, but really what makes the experience more enriching is to share it with someone yeah. and share it with people. So we set up the place where uh, entrepreneurial, creative, internationally minded people could go for whether that's a week if you're, if you're leaving your, um, and you only have a, a short period of time, yeah. or you're living this lifestyle where you're going from, from month to month to place to place. Um, so that these people could meet. So it's really a, a values-driven space uh, yeah. rather than a, a workspace for work's sake. Yeah, so it's very much, and I think we'll come on to that a bit later on, the community base, because I think Outpost has done a brilliant job in terms of creating, like the brand value is really rooted in the community. Um, and so it, I think a lot of brands are kind of going towards that way now and modeling that. Um, and, but and people have this, this social, uh, need requirement and yeah. and when you're traveling when you're younger I, I did it for six months when I was 23 and it was fabulous to go around from hostels and you could meet people yeah. and and so but as you get older somehow that dynamic stops. yeah totally <laughs> and and when people are now used to swiping right to meet someone as opposed to being able to approach someone in space yeah. we try and create that that hostel type social environment uh, with around, surrounded by the values of the that we so, have this yeah, entrepreneurial exactly. creative, and then the ability to tap someone on the shoulder and say, "Hey, what you're reading is quite interesting. <laughs> I just saw that, and I, I really want to talk to someone about it." Yeah, yeah. Have you had a lot of, um, I guess, like business birth of business partners meet within Outpost? Do you have a lot of stories around that? There, are, there are a number of stories of people who come out there with their business partner and who are launching mm -hmm. a, a new idea and need the space and to get away from the distractions yep, yeah. of, of, of the everyday. Um, and we have um, people who come out there to learn. We had a coding course, we have a number of coding courses coming through. Oh, so people are building their, their skills. Um, and then we hear, yeah, of, of people who, who get together and, and it, ultimately we've got a, a number of people who work on a freelance or a gig basis. Mm -hmm. So when you have that many people in one space, they start to they start to they yeah. start to interact, and then we also have here deals falling apart of people getting together and wanting to start an AI Breaking company, up, yeah. and then realizing well their values were different. So um, we've got the whole gamut. Absolutely, and so this kind of I guess it really you know attracts the digital nomad or freelancers who are able to work remotely. Um, I mentioned earlier, I, was, I remember when I was living in London and when I first read the, um, the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss, which I'm sure you would have read, 
um, that was kind of the first book that gave me insight into traveling whilst working and and it's kind of become like a big you know blow up now especially um, with people wanting the, the freedom and being able to travel as well with the rise of Instagram um, what advice would you give for someone who wants to you know start working remotely and traveling at the same time I think uh, be, be good at what you do decide what it is that you want to do and then take that traveling yeah. um, I, I find that there are people who, who look for the goal of doing something international and I was one of those people I didn't know what I wanted to specifically do but I wanted to know I could do it internationally yeah and I think when when something becomes rewarding it's not because you've decided to do drop shipping so you could do something internationally you decided to do drop shipping because you really have an interest yeah. in, in in selling certain products or uh, I believe that you can take almost anything international. Mm. Just find something that really inspires you on a day to day, and then and then and then take that international. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you don't, if it's not, if you're not doing something that you're passionate or you genuinely have an interest in, then eventually you're going to get bored, um, right. and then yeah, it's just going to end in pieces. I think. Right. So, so there's yeah. things you can do for a period of time. So when when I was younger. Uh, working overseas was harder, so I taught English. I didn't wasn't going to be an English teacher, yeah. but it was a means to an end. Exactly. And I took skills away from that, and then and then and then moved on. But if I wanted to make a lifestyle of it, and I wanted to be an English teacher, then that would have been hard for me because that didn't fit who I passion. was. It was a it was a temporary thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so. There's been like this huge, huge rise um, in demand for flexible work arrangements. I think a lot of people, even people who work um, in the cities and um, are still working full time, there's a lot of agile working now. And I think, you know, people are seeking more freedom and a better work-life balance. Where do you see the co-working and co-living industry going in the next three to five years? Well, what I see is, I don't know if people want more freedom, they want more control. And uh, I, I believe that people want to be able to determine that these are the hours that I'm going to be able to work and I'm going to get the job that I need to do done. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, is how do we create um, spaces, call them offices, workspaces, that people can pop in and pop out of? How do we create these base camps so mm-hmm. that there's a place to be productive? Yeah. And so I, I think what we'll see are, are a number of things. I think with the riot, it was a, a virtual reality. Yeah. And that almost becomes stronger than real reality when you can have your meetings and have numbers out there. And, That's crazy. And, <laughs> and, and so why do you need to be in the same physical space yeah. if when you put on your glasses you're able to accomplish more than actually physically yeah, yeah. meeting people? And for what, whether good or bad, the, the interactions with office is more hidden behind the screen. So that allows people to be really from anywhere. Mm-hmm. So how do we create these, these network of spaces that, uh, that facilitates the use of technology mm-hmm. um, and that um, excites people to be there rather than an office where the office is serving the needs of the, of the company mm-hmm. and the works in it, and, and, not the and then and not the people. Yeah. So we see the offices becoming and adopting more of the hospitality industry's yeah. focus. So the office serves the needs of the individual mm-hmm. rather than the company. Yeah. And it, it might be the self-indulgent space, but um, I think we're, you've seen trends in that where you have a foosball table or things like yeah, that. But those, yeah. those are to keep people there and to keep people interacting with, 
uh, others. The question is, what can these spaces do to attract people when they're not working? Yeah. Like, how do you decide? Hey, let's go to the movies. But you know what? Let's go to let's go to X space where I also work. Exactly. So that these spaces become more fluid between live and work, mm -hmm. between um, play and work. And there's no big distinction. It's like in the goo offices where they have like you know, all of the rest restaurants, all the food that they have, they have these sleeping pods. There's really no, no reason to leave. Well, there's no reason to leave. So there's the whole people. But the question is, is what, and then increasingly I see offices opening up to other people who don't work there. Yeah. And so uh, how do we, because what people want to be around is others who share their values. Yeah. So why does it matter if the person works in the office or not? Yeah, in that's the same true. company. Exactly. So I see a, a trend towards major companies allowing other people within their space. And I see their opportunities for, for workspaces to do that with cafes or other ways to, to offer a product or service that, that attracts people who share their values. So there's a more interactive experience. Yeah, exactly. Or even people within the same industry, you right. know, they don't have to be working with the same company. I like the point that you said about kind of making it more um, like the hospitality industry. Which is true, it's just like having human like creature comforts, I think, and that's so important. Um, I personally quite like working at home because just you know, because I'm near the fridge and that's what's important to well, me. Well see, I you know? had I had so I had so much trouble. I so when I was writing my book, I, there were times when I was in New York all of a sudden it was four thirty mm. and it was getting getting dark and I was about to go to the gym and I, I looked down to see if I was properly dressed because I haven't had any interactions. I had no social. I, I didn't I didn't feel like the day had started and all yeah. of a sudden it was 430 and and I and I I just didn't feel it sorted. Right. And and so for me being out there and and and, and getting away from home is important to mm -hmm. me. Sure. I like the opportunity to, to be able to wake up and, 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 and get stuff done and and relax, shower, and, and, yeah. and have a more control of my day. Right. But I felt that the distance from home was important to me. Right, right. Do you mean almost se like separating workspace from home? And do you think that helped with your discipline? Because I know once people go you know, into entrepreneurship or even as a freelancer, you have to be really disciplined with your time. Like no one's telling you to come in at nine and leaving at five. And so do you think that that helps in that sense? It was one of the challenges that, that discipline, what, what I have, um, what I had in Bali when I came there the first mm -hmm. time, I didn't have that discipline. And, yeah. and, and working in a resort town is fabulous because it's everything's open always. There's no rhythm. It's three o'clock. You want to go out for lunch. All of a sudden, you're hanging, having a yeah, coffee, totally. and it's four thirty-five. Then it's like dinner, <laughs> and you're like, "How does that happen?" <laughs> then the sunset, and then and, and I was working on New York with yeah. New York people, and. And they don't have that mentality. And, and I'm sending out emails to work partners in Indonesia and Bali, and I get an email back a day later. It's 9.45 at night. I'm sending out three emails to three different people in New York. I got a response by 10. <laughs> so I have to be able to, to, to swim in that current, if yeah. you will, to be able to service and have a business relations mm -hmm. with those people. And that's where something like Outpost was very helpful because there's the structure, there are people coming at a certain time during yeah. the day, there is a rhythm and a flow. Mm. And so to be able to create that rhythm and a flow uh, is something that the Outpost do, does because I also feel it was something that was important for, for me. Yeah, absolutely. Because I otherwise agree. you're, what am I gonna do today? 
totally. And surfing I, and when I've been to Bali, usually it's been kind of for work and play, but you plan to do a whole day. I usually I'm quite good, but before you know it, it's like, oh, it's like 3 p.m. and right. I haven't even done this, 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 this. But right. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and for so. me, and, and for me, and, I, and this has been true of others, um, they've they found themselves working more. Right. Paradoxically, because there aren't the, the clues during the day. There isn't the rush breaks, hour. Yeah. There isn't the, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's a, it's it's And it's that's another topic on overburn, which sure. we'll probably come on to later. So just talking on, you mentioned, you know, um, what tools can we create to kind of facilitate this change in technology? So my question is, what, what do you have any productivity or efficiency, efficiency tools that you um, use or tips you can give for people working remotely or have a team all over the world and you know want to get more organized uh, there's there's a whole suite of, of different tools that, that, that people use to varying degrees um, it's important that your team it, it's not necessarily the tool that you use it's it slack um, is it a, is it a, is it a sauna or Trello mm -hmm. um, it's important that there is some type of routine that that the team uses okay. and that there's a, a, a communication culture yeah. and uh, and it's a hard thing to, to balance especially when people come on and have preferred tools and so forth so uh, it's very easy to organize yourself when it's one person and you can, yeah, you can exactly. get by with a calendar um, but how do you and, and, the, and the challenge that I, that I face and, 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 and people who lead companies is is how do we set up the culture of, of communication? And there are things that I'm consistently working on to make sure that the communication is there. You know, I come from a generation where um, pick up the phone, um, go talk to someone. Mm, yeah. And uh, I, I often hear back from people, I, they didn't return my, 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 my Slack. And that's bad. And I, we try and encourage, acknowledge the, the, you know, acknowledge that someone had made a request. Uh, but I always feel like, why haven't you just gone over and talked to them? Yeah. Why haven't you called them? So to me, uh, one of the forgotten tools is the ability to, to call. Right, right. Uh, and important of, of setting up a communication structure within the organization, whatever tool you use. Mm -hmm. um, and then trying to not inundate people yeah. um, with one type of communication. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's just about setting the right, you know, the understanding kind of silence values as opposed to how you communicate and the rules essentially around that but yeah very very important um, it is funny how sometimes you get people just send passive aggressive emails like just go and talk to the person it would right. have been way quicker you know and you see that a lot especially in work environments but. and that yeah that's it, it, I think that people um, have sometimes lost the art of Speaking. Um, <laughs> speaking and and would you say that in front of a person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you read that note you just wrote in front of a person? And if you could, great. If you feel that you would cringe your toes as you say it, um, then maybe, yeah. you know, maybe even with the emojis, it doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree. Um, okay. Uh, my next question is, what do you think has been the biggest challenge? You know, when you initially started Outpost. Um, what were, were kind of the major road road bumps and, and what advice can you give to anyone looking to start a real estate venture? I think there's um, a little bit of, of, of arrogance on my part. I mean, there's, to, I'm from the States. <laughs> I come to Indonesia. 
Um, I don't really speak the language so well. I don't understand the culture so well. Um, there are rules of finance and um, there are challenges as a foreigner because of the regulations to set up a company. Um, so I'm going to, there's banking rules that are, are challenging and especially as an American. So I'm already starting off on the wrong foot for a successful business in another country. Because as my mom would say, well, why wouldn't, why don't you just do that here? Yeah. And, and part of, and, and there are less internationally known businesses that start in, in, um, in, in developing countries compared yeah. to developed countries. Yeah. Um, because there are more struggles uh, at first. There are less international companies coming out of Ind Indonesia mm -hmm. um, than there are coming out of the U.S. or the, or the, yeah, or the U.K. Uh, so everything we run into <laughs> initially is some type of, of challenge. But it's, it's, I learn about myself going through them. And I learn about uh, the culture and, and, and I'm tested in, in unique ways and, and everything becomes a learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's always what's challenged me about traveling and, and working is that I'm constantly reflecting on who I am and, and what it's like in the U.S. Yeah. and how that's different. And I learn about my country by being in Indonesia um, or Uganda or Lithuania or yeah. all of these places. And, and I don't necessarily think I've gained a lot of in, intelligence. I'm <laughs> going through I'm this. I'm sure you have. But wis wisdom as to yes, what, yeah, yeah. And, and what wisdom I've and been reflection. able to identify are when things may be going wrong and when I need to ask for help. And so at any country I've been to, there are unique situations that I find myself in that I think I know how to get out of because in an American way, there's a logic and we go through things logically. Yeah. And in and that most likely will not work <laughs> yeah, in Japan totally. or in yeah. it's not like it, it's not like logic does not work. It's just my set of logic right, doesn't right. necessarily work in this particular environment. Yeah. So how do we really you know go balance that and address that particular yeah, problem? Absolutely. And that's rely and therefore you're relying on others yeah. um, to a greater extent than you wouldn't wouldn't in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so I guess you know you've been traveling from quite a young age. How do you think this has kind of helped you professionally and even just adopting an entrepreneurial mindset? I feel like it very much goes hand in hand in the sense that you learn to be a lot more open-minded and not to try and control things too much and realize that, you know, shit is going to happen, but you, you deal well, with it. I think internationally, uh, I, I started traveling at 21. Right. I hadn't really left the, the, the U.S. I was in Canada or Montreal for a day. And uh, and Mexico for a day, day and a half. <laughs> yeah, I wow. really didn't spend much time, yeah. and and so I went to a Montreal Expos game, and, <laughs> and that was really the extent of my. They put mayonnaise on fries. And yeah. To me, that was like wow. <laughs> I'm so culture shock. Yeah. So I I, I I I wasn't exposed, and so the first trip I had was to Japan, oh, and wow. I still remember arriving in Japan for teaching English for the first time, and how and everything was new yeah. and and as I was saying before it, it, it just how do I observe it was just the opportunity to learn because every time I see a person do this and I'd make wild wild thinking I mean my thinking would go um, 
would swing wildly as to why someone would do that. I would see in Japan there was a lot of barbed wire in some of the houses. I was like, mm. well, it seemed odd to have all this barbed wire in Japan, but yet it was a safe country. Yeah. And why are there glass spears coming out of people's individual um, walls that are separating their house from from the, from the street? Yeah. It seemed. And then, so those are the things that I would sit there and ponder and uh -huh. never come up with answers to. Um, but would would get me thinking, and I wouldn't really think much about that walking down the street in in Trumbull, Connecticut, where I used to grow up. Yeah, absolutely. What? So why did? What made you decide to go to Japan and study English? Like, what do you think was the trigger? For so you to decide? J Japan to um, to to teach English was really about I'm going to do this one trip, and then I'm going to come back and continue my consulting career and. You were management consulting at the time. Well, I, I I thought that that was my calling. Right. Um, <laughs> so that's that's that. what that's what we did when we weren't creative. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do so. you know what management consultancy was actually what I that was like my dream job yeah. before you like after uni as well. Yeah, so that's <laughs> why it was you felt that you had <laughs> you felt like you had some level of status, and you had some level of yeah. importance. You were branded something. And you knew that you could go on to the next career and do X or Y yeah. and succeed. So that's that's really all I knew about consulting, mm -hmm. and I even knew less about Japan. I knew that it had uh, the comforts of what I was familiar with, but it was vast, very, you know, vastly different. Yeah. And I remember I said there were a few things that weren't going to happen. I was never going to be because I had ideas of what Japan life was like in, yeah. in the late '90s, and that I would never go to someone's house and I'd never have meat because it was so expensive and and sure enough this first you know the first or second night I'm there you're like having meat the, the first Kirby meat. I'm having meat Kirby the first P. night and some 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 locals person locals house. invited my friends and I over really? to their house yeah, on the yeah, second yeah. night and I was like all right you know and I realized at that point just don't have expectation of what it's like yeah, to go absolutely. overseas or at least be modest to realize you're probably wrong yeah yeah is this Tokyo that you were working and I was in Kobe in Kobe. Oh, I've been there, yeah. yeah so it's a lovely place. And, yeah, and at that, that time in Kobe, whenever you would see a, a foreigner, um, that you would, you, would, you would give a, a little bit of a head nod. Yeah. And now I go back to Kobe and lots totally of foreigners. And, yeah. and so what I've also realized about traveling is it's also a time issue. Like you, you, you visit a, a place during a certain time mm -hmm. and the experience you have um, it's sometimes less about the place, but more about the time you were there and who you were. And when yeah, you were exactly. It's, it's your experience. Isn't right. It? So yeah. I've repeated my experience in Tokyo, and I was living there in 90, 98, and then back in 2012, and it was a very different experience. Even though it was the same place. Yeah, of course. I had changed. It had changed. My role had changed. And it might as well have been sold. Yeah. Other absolutely. than the language and the. Yeah, it's so true. Even when I go back to like when I go back to visit home in London now, it just seems so different to when I was living there because I know I've changed and it's just yeah, it's your perspective, right? right. Absolutely. Like you mentioned you know calling beforehand, um, and like I guess my next question is, how do you think people can kind of discover their calling as per se, and, and do you believe in that, or what? What's your? I don't know if thoughts? I believe that people have a calling and you're finding out what that calling is. I believe when you start to, to work at something and you, and you hone that craft, and you start to, to receive rewards from that that spur you to do more. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I had a, a friend who was in media, media sales. 
And I don't think he grew up as a child when people say, I want to be a policeman, I want to be a fireman. He's like, I want to, be, I want to do media sales. Yeah. But he became very good at it and, and he found it rewarding. And uh, like myself, I, I didn't think that I would um, at one point become a, um, an expert in commodities and, and rare metals. Yeah. Uh, metals that are crucial to green technologies. Uh, but I really found a lot of um, excitement in that uh, because these metals were um, in geopolitical battles. They were crucial to a green technology and a sustainable future. Mm -hmm. um, they, they had um, huge environmental impacts when done wrong. And all of those things meant something to me. And, and so when I started doing research, I became more excited about it. There weren't many people doing it. Um, and I built up this expertise and knowledge. This is your niche, and, yeah. And that was my niche, and I felt rewarded that I could go speak to people, and so I testified in front of Congress about these materials, and, and so I went from nothing to, to becoming an expert, and I felt like it was that process, that journey, and talking about certain aspects of things that, that were meaningful to me, but no rare metals weren't my calling, but yeah. I enjoyed that entire experience. Yeah. And when people are sit, you know, looking for what is their, their true calling, um, sometimes it's it, it's something that's got to be learned and built mm -hmm. and, and, and appreciated and I think there's real joy um, and enrichment when you become an expert in, in something yeah and, and you and you grow because then you can um, tutor or, or mentor others and and it's that that the mentoring people is fabulous yeah. and, and you can only get there well, you should only get there if you have some expertise exactly, so yeah. what is so it's not what, the, is, your what is that expertise yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so that's why I don't know if this true calling, mm -hmm. um, maybe it's not, I'm not being romantic that there's this <laughs> one true calling and that yeah, there are no, people Yeah, no, I totally are, understand. I think it's just the power of, you know, passion, but also purpose and, you know, there's a lot of kind of crossover with those words, but I think in terms of finding passion, it's been, like I remember I used to, I remember when I was younger, I used to really, I, I was so desperate to find my passion and I couldn't. Like I thought I wanted to be a yoga teacher at one point and I was like, oh, this is just what I was trying to think my way out of my finding my passion. And you, everyone knows you can't do that. But, you know, when you, at the time it's it's really hard because it's like, how do you know what your passion is? There were, I had so many passions, like I love music, I love dance, I love cooking. And I was like, I want to do all these things. But it was only when I started to do stuff and start something did I start to kind of really refine and the things that I knew what I was really good at and was genuinely passionate about I could do for hours only by through doing do you realize what you're passionate about right right and um, there's this there's this you also have this, this sense of arrogance that you can you can choose yeah <laughs> I mean for most people and for the happiest people and for, for certain people they don't have a choice and yeah. they can find ways to be happy and and sometimes the lack of choice mm -hmm. um, creates uh, Makes less of a disincentive exactly. for, for, to yeah. find happiness when you're always thinking well there's the next great thing oh they're doing something and then yeah. you're constantly on your Instagram feed and you want to do that yeah yeah, yeah absolutely. and and you miss really what's in what's in front of you mm -hmm. and yeah. I've been guilty of that getting um, distracted doing something different all of the time right um, but but sometimes it's not the it's, it's when you lead a company when I let a, a, a NGO focus on, on water um, I was still leading an organization and 80% of what I was doing was organizational related, not yeah. focused on the water. Right. The water was, at times I'd forget that, I'm, that, I, that I was working on water. Mm. It could have been a whole bunch of different issues. And the same with, with, um, with Outpost now. 
is that I'm leading an organization and I know its purpose and, and I'm proud to, to be able to serve that uh, a group of people that I was once a part of, yeah. but it's still leading an organization. Yeah. And so it could be the skills that I have could be transferable to it. I could be leading a, you know, a, a mining company or, or it's because those are the skills that I'm, that I'm learning and dealing with yeah, on a day-to-day -day basis. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, so you mentioned, so, so finding people's pur purpose, if you like something, go for it, <laughs> try and dig down, see if you see if, see if by doing it more and becoming better at it, because there's nothing more rewarding than someone saying, you know what? That, that piece of whatever you created, that, that writing you did was great, or that, that, you know, your thoughts on this subject are fabulous. Yeah. And that... That encouragement. That encouragement that, wow, I have this expertise and this skill is, is something that, that can't be replaced. And you can't, you can't buy that, you can't get it, you can only earn that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's just through doing and through being curious and exploring, just putting in the hours and being dedicated to something. Um, and not expecting results like the next day. <laughs> um, so you mentioned uh, like the kind of expertise that you've built around you know these rare metals. So I just want to go into your book, The Elements of Power. Um, so when did you? Can you tell us a bit more about what the book is about and some of the challenges that you faced in writing this, and like why you decided to write a book? You know. Sure. Well, I was I was based in in Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry. Uh, 2010 and, and at that time China and Japan were having a, a territorial political dispute um, and during that time China withheld these random rare earth elements from Japan and, and Japan quickly responded uh, giving in to many of Chinese demands related to this ter territorial dispute yeah. and uh, it was very curious to me is what what were these materials that were so important to Japan that they would they would end the dispute rather rather quickly on terms that could be seen as as more favorable than they would have liked to have done. How did you know all of this? <laughs> well, at the time, because I was working in Japan's Ministry oh, of Economy, right, right. Yeah, so oh, I was at a ringside you. seat to this geopolitical battle. Yeah, yeah. It was big in 2010. <laughs> you know, there was a there was a there was this was news. And so, uh, and I was in the commodity space right, and people right. were saying, what are these things? And I said, well, I really don't know. And so I did more research and I was like, wow, they're, they're, cri my, my, they're critical to my flat screen television. If I want to yeah. see the, the color green, I need terbium. Mm -hmm. You know, if I, those, those Walkman, those Sony headphones that used to be really big on people's ears, although they've gotten big again, yeah. um, the sound quality has become so strong. Uh, because of a neodymium magnet, which is this rare earth element. Right. And it turned out Japan was very reliant on China for these materials, just as the world is reliant on these materials for green technologies. Mm -hmm. um, they make these, these certain elements make materials, um, they make the products we use lighter, stronger, faster, and ultimately greener. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said, well, what are these elements? So 2010, I went off to, to find out what these elements were and why they were important. And I knew I always wanted to write a book. So I started walking into mines in Indonesia and, and, and um, going to material uh, processing facilities in China and started just asking questions. And uh, through asking questions, going to conferences, uh, I built up this expertise mm -hmm. firsthand. And 
that led to, to putting that knowledge into a book. And I think my experience working in investment banking, working in the, in the White House, and, and working uh, with, with NGOs allowed me to speak the language of a lot of the to people I was interviewing. Yeah, yeah. So I could speak to a, uh, a mining executive mm -hmm. about uh, the business implications of what he's doing, and I yeah, could speak yeah. to a, an NGO about some of the, the stakeholders and environmental um, yeah. challenges, and, and I could speak many languages. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, that people would, would, would speak to me as, a, as an equal. Right, right. And the hard parts were speaking to material scientists and right, trying to understand what the heck they were trying saying. Trying to, yeah, connect with them. Right. And, and because I didn't have that, that language. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the book was really uh, a compilation of stories and uh, that relates to the narrative arc of, of materials that no one's ever heard of that are increasingly becoming important. And uh, you know, as batteries proliferate, and as everyone in the world has um, a flat-screen TV and, yeah. and, and refrigerators, these materials become um, greater of importance. Yeah. So it's the story of stuff, if you will. Okay, very interesting. What? Um, I'm just curious, but like, what would you say there were any <laughs> like childhood kind of? I, I guess, um, like the way that you were brought up, which kind of made you want to take this, you know, unconventional path and try all these different, um, like, career paths, because it sounds like you've tried a lot of things and, and to eventually become an entrepreneur and to become an author. Like, why do you think, where do you think your drive comes from? Uh, well, I, my father uh, worked in the same company for 37 years. Wow. My mom is still in the same house that I was born into. Wow. <laughs> so they have these very strong roots. Yeah. Um, I don't think I was a spiteful son who wanted to, to get out, but I enjoyed the learning of being in lots of different places. Yeah. Um, and, and experiencing things. Uh, and I, I, I was blessed with that opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, if my parents were in different situations. I, I, I would have had a different experience if I wasn't uh, uh, a white male from Connecticut, I would have very different experiences. So that I know that some of the challenges that other people have, I haven't faced to the same, to the same, to the same degree. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if there was anything in my childhood that you would say, oh, at 13, this guy's going to go and do crazy things. Um, I don't know if this, you know, an entrepreneur is, to me, is um, has all of a sudden really become an adjective rather than a noun. Mm -hmm. I, I look at an entrepreneur who's someone who's, who's it's kind of old school, but someone who set up a, a career and they've, and they've started multiple businesses many times. Mm -hmm. An entrepreneur now is becoming someone who does something on their own. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a success. Yep, yep. Like it's just like, hey, I've done this entrepreneurial endeavor. I've yep. tried to start, oh, it didn't work, we moved on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now yeah, I'm working totally. here. No, you weren't an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you weren't this, someone who could build their livelihood yeah. um, in that. And I, I've, liked, I've liked starting and creating things. And I guess in that lexicon, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, but I thought it was the metal experience um, was writing a book. And that wasn't really a typical entrepreneur. But in terms of creating something from nothing, yeah. that was more entrepreneurial than than some of the other endeavors that I've had. Yeah. Um, but it, I wouldn't say that, you know, I look at myself as, as someone who's writing rather than a, a, an entrepreneur. Right, right. But, so, um, yes, going back to the, the original question, uh, I don't think there was something that I would say at age 15, you would have said, hey, 
this guy's traveling. Yeah, but even just like the fact that you mentioned, you know, both your parents were very much stable and they kind of stayed in the same the same home, the same job, maybe you saw that and realized that that was not the kind of life that you wanted to live and you wanted to live like a, a part, go down the more risk-taking uncertainty. It is, know? and then the grass is always greener. Mm. Uh, I, I, I envy the roots they're able to build, the, the connections. I think people underestimate the ability to walk down the street and someone knows you. Mm. And you don't get that I, I think you should have a place that's always home. And I think you should always have a place, if you're fortunate, yeah. and always have a place and have the opportunity to, to go out and explore. Yeah. And to do one, um, to do explore solely, I think you just lack that really in, enrichment in your life. Sure, it gives you great perspective, but if you're not able to have shared experiences, and that's, that's one of the things that we talk about at Outpost is how do we create shared experiences. Because it's one thing for you to go to um, a yoga class and then your friend to go, at least in the case of Outpost, and your uh, friend to go to the same yoga class later. You could say, oh, how, did you have the same teacher? Do we have the same, you know, you, why do you like that class? But it's, it's a different type of uh, connection that you develop than when you were to go to the same class at the same time. And you look over and your friend's trying to hold their pose and you can see the sweat coming off their nose <laughs> and they're not doing it experience. and they're falling down and you see it and you're holding it. You go through the struggle yeah. together. And then afterwards, as you're, if you're sharing over a coconut, you can say, I saw you, you, you were having trouble, but you usually do. And they're like, yeah, I just wasn't feeling right today. So yeah, those yeah. types of shared experiences are yeah. important. And if you're always on the move and you're not, you're not thinking really about it. Really connecting, you're not yeah. really present and really experiencing right. it. Yeah. Right, then you're just having, you know, as, as I did dueling travel stories. Yeah. And then how do I, oh, I was here, there, oh, I did this, I did that, I did that. And it, yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. I think sometimes we forget, especially being, living in this digital age, we spend a lot of our time and make connections through social media. And I think sometimes we forget to spend quality time with people right. and doing these things. And it's, yeah, we should never, um, forget the importance of that and I do that I mean I, I yeah so I do know, I yeah. we're all guilty of it you, you, you know you sit there and so say do I. but uh, you, you talk about productive routines I think that's one of the important ones mm. um, my friend my friend Brant Ben um, he started the nonprofit in Uganda okay. um, he a, a little bit of backstory um, he was in the US military and was called up um, to serve in, in Uganda right. to help at some peace building initiatives and he um, he built uh, roads and wells, and when he came back to the U.S., he was very interested in, in continuing doing that. So he set up this nonprofit on the side, right, right. built some, um, would collect money and then send it over, and they would build water wells. Uh, this was before the Charity Water. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that nonprofit from the U.S. No, yeah, came. I am. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he was one of the people who's actually doing the, the work on the ground, and he set up this nonprofit, and he was doing that in his spare time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always admired his ability to uh, segment off time. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm going to do this from eight to nine, and then I'm going out camping with my friends, and then I'll, I'll come back, and then I'll, I'll do a little bit of work from you know, yeah, nine yeah. to ten. And he was able to, to, to segment um, the work time for play. himself and yeah. himself as well. Right. Yeah. And, and he was always the first guy who would get the, my, my thesis done in, in university. He was very good at, at segmenting his life, not for work's sake and productivity's sake, but yeah. for life's sake. Right, right. And that kind of brings me to the last couple of questions that we have, because we'll probably have to wrap up. But um, do you have 
like you, you were talking about carving out time for yourself, right? And I think time and solitude is so important. Um, do you have like a morning routine of some sort where you have that moment of, you know, just time to yourself without any distractions? Well, I, I don't schedule meetings in the mornings. Uh, yeah, so always try to leave them to the afternoon. So I, I leave them if I, I till eleven is, is is a good time. Okay. Um, and that gives a little bit of, of flexibility to 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 handle um, either immediate issues that have to be dealt with. Um, as a startup, you have a little bit less time um, between you and the, a little bit of less space between you and the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> So I'm, I'm trying to build more buffers between me and the fire, but sometimes I, I don't have that ability. Uh, and then to, to think, what do I need to get accomplished during the day? Yeah. Um, and, then, and then any meeting I go into, what, what is my goal of that meeting? What do I need to get out of it? Um, so that's really what the, what the morning allows me, allows me to do. Why am I doing something? How and to what, be more intentional. Right, right. Uh, so that's, that's the idea. I could do a better job in the evening of, 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 of stopping and yeah. saying this is the, this is the cutoff. Yeah, um, yeah. That's what I really need a nighttime routine. <laughs> I need a nighttime routine. Well, I've, always, I've always felt that I have two Daves. There's, there's um, night Dave and day Dave. <laughs> night Dave. And uh, I'm, very, I'm a morning person and I'm an evening person or a night person. Yeah. But I can only be one. Yeah. You know? and, and so I'm usually night Dave wins out. And uh, Morning Dave isn't isn't this good? Yeah. But when I have seen Morning Dave, he's really, he's really good. good. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Really he's good. really, really so good. I, so I, um, when I used to work in the government, I had Morning Dave, right, uh, right. and I had a very consistent schedule. Eleven seventeen, I was in in bed. I was up by six. Did you say eleven seventeen? Eleven seventeen. Wow, that was like dead. Because off. that was when, at that point, when John Stewart was. Um, That's still quite late, though. I was think. John Stewart was um, ending the ending his. His, his, his opening routine and then I would get in bed and I'd probably yeah. be asleep and then I'd get up at 7 and off yeah, you go and off I go and yeah. that was the weekend or weekday so um, I gotta get back to that at some point yeah okay last two questions sure one book you would gift to others that's not mine <laughs> that's not yours <laughs> I mean yours that, is obviously a given yeah I was, that's 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 that's, that's yeah. usually um, I like Danny the champion of the, the world the elements of power in case yeah, anyone element, was wondering yeah, yeah it's, it's on Amazon you can get that in Chinese <laughs> Korean or, yeah. uh, the uh, do you Danny do the audio the ch- book in Chinese too uh, <laughs> I didn't do the audio book in English oh, um, okay uh, <laughs> My, my publisher wasn't as aggressive in the selling of, of books as I was. Um, so, I, I, Danny the Champion of the World. It was Pardon? by Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl? Um, yeah. I don't remember that one. I used well, to Well, maybe it's in my Dahl. mind because it was in, I was in, yeah, I believe it is he. I was in Cardiff and he, that's his home. And so maybe that's fresh oh. in my mind because of that. Yeah, I'm um, a big fan of Roald Dahl. Um, so just being able to, to kind of dream big. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, more fiction than non-fiction. I feel like non-fiction can be too preachy. Yeah. <laughs> um, if I say that, then you're like, oh. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so Amazing. yeah, that was. And then, one last question: What philosophy? What philosophy do you live by, or do you kind of follow? I guess. Oh, a philosophy that I live or by. Or one quote. Um. <laughs> one quote that I live by. Um, a quote <laughs> that's inspired you. 
I, I, I joke when we don't have any quotes around Outpost um, uh, because uh, I feel like that's tr trite and I didn't want to <laughs> be, you know, enjoy that. I didn't want to be too, too out there. So I, I joke about more money, more problems. <laughs> um, like, get rich or die trying. Um, yeah. a, a quote, um, I think there's... Um, yeah, I think it was, it was Ovid said, may your rod always be cast because in the pond you least expect that there'll be fish. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's kind of spoken to how I've, you know, um, taken opportunities when they're there. Mm -hmm. um, it's just be, be, aware, be aware, be ready for them. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. For being on the show. I appreciate that it. That was, you know, really, really interesting. And I'm sure our listeners will... Um, be able to get so much wisdom from you um, I'll put all of the details in our show notes so people can find out more about you know where they can buy your book um, and also um, if they want to check out Out Outpost as well so yeah, yeah thank you so much thank you